welcome to Swift Unscripted. Swift podcasts give you the opportunity to hear the inside story and be part of the conversation about all means all with leaders in the field of inclusive education and school-wide transformation. Here we are at the Swift headquarters recording a live podcast on the topic of positive behavior intervention and supports. Our guest today is Rob Horner. Rob is a professor of special education at the University of Oregon. He's the director of the Educational Community Supports Research Unit within the College of Education, focusing on developing and implementing practices that result in positive, durable, scientifically validated change in the lives of individuals with disabilities and their families. He co-directs the OSEP, Office of Special Education Programming, Technical Assistance Center and Research and Demonstration Center on PBIS, that's Positive Behaviors Intervention and Supports. Rob has a 25-year history helping schools develop systems for embedding PBIS into their practices. He's published over 150 professional papers, six TEDs. Uh, Some of us think of him as a father of Positive Behavior Interventions and Supports. His Vita is 54 pages long, don't want to embarrass you. Welcome, Rob. Thank you. How did you get into this work? What, what, was, what motivated you? You know, that's a question we all mm-hmm. ask, it and is. Uh, there is the temptation to try and make it sound rational and linear. I think these kinds of life-changing events almost always happen, partly from serendipity, partly from inclination, partly from things that come up. The two big things that I would come back to is one, Um, My father was a superintendent of schools, so I grew up inside a community of educators, and the idea of the value and the importance of education was always there. Uh, The other thing is that the year that I was born, my grandmother had a major stroke, which paralyzed um, the left side of her body and impinged on her ability to communicate. And I grew up in a family where accommodation and modification was not perceived as uh, unusual or exceptional. It was something that just the whole family did in terms of physical adjustments, in terms of the way that family dinners at Thanksgiving would be done. It was uh, just, you know, who's, who's helping grandma? And uh, we Did changed. your grandmother live with you? She did not. She lived on a farm in rural Oregon, Mm. and she was very proud of that. Um, So you actually grew up in Oregon? I grew up in Oregon, yes. And you're still there today? Yeah, I'm still there today. Went away to California and Washington, but came back. Uh Uh So anyway, it's um, the other thing that was opportunities for me really were early on working with children who had emotional and behavior problems, and then children who had very, very significant disabilities. And the What was your work? Were you a, a teacher? Were you a, initially a, in California, working at a summer camp? Or <laughs> I, I did the summer camp piece, but that was different. Um, I was a teaching parent in California. So if you think of Achievement Place out of Kansas, uh, there yeah. was a variation of that in California. And so for a couple of years, I was actually one of the teaching parents with kids who were adjudicated and were, had extraordinarily impressive problem behaviors. Mm-hmm. And we were actually 
quite successful. We organized systematic environments that gave clarity, precision, teaching, support, nurturing opportunities for these kids early on. From there, I actually worked as uh, I worked in a uh, actually a segregated school in California for kids with uh, severe disabilities, and again worked closely with families and worked there. And that was actually the place where I learned more about inclusion, because part of my task was to help the kids that I was that were in my class reintegrate into the regular Palo Alto school district. Um, and I was, I both had great fun doing that and felt incredibly out of my league. It was um, one of those things where I had this one little girl who was very self-injurious and was um, just very committed to her way of life and whatnot. And she was great fun to work with. But each day, at the end of the day, I would send her home into an environment that I knew was just uh, very difficult and dangerous for her. And uh, it just broke my heart. And I didn't really know what to do. And so I did the logical thing that you did in those days, which is I went back to graduate school. Uh, and have been, basically I went to uh, graduate school at Washington State. I would work with rats and pigeons in the morning doing behavior analytic work, and I worked with children with autism in the afternoon, being taught by them how it really worked. And so that was the foundation that led to the other opportunities for me. Wow, what a great story. It's, um, I'm kind of struck by how similar our own paths were to this work. I would describe the same thing around growing up in that type of family and earliest work, uh, working in segregated environments and really challenging, you know, what are we, what, you know, what kind of outcomes are we producing in these situations and learning about inclusive education and, and going on. Um, and now here we are working with SWIFT. There you go. Now, the topic of this podcast is positive behavior intervention and supports, and I'm wondering if you could give us a quick overview of the definition of PBIS. There's two different definitions. One is what is positive behavior support. The other is what is PBIS okay. as an approach. Okay, thank so you. So think about positive behavior support is really something that's defined first and foremost by uh, a commitment to lifestyle outcomes. And it really grew out of a vision of using behavioral technology to produce substantive change. But there was a misapplication early on of thinking about using behavioral strategies simply to reduce behaviors mm -hmm, we didn't like, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, Ted Carr, Bob Cagle, uh, Glenn Dunlap, and others... Uh, Mark Durand, and a lot of early TASH uh, advocates really recognized that if we were going to use the technology of instruction, if we were going to use the principles of behavior well, we needed to shift beyond little measures of frequency of behavior and only focusing on what we didn't want. 
we really needed to focus on how we use that technology to build capacity that was sustainable, that was durable, that didn't focus on what happened during 15-minute observation periods, but happened all day long. And the, the language that came out of that is, to what extent do we deliver not intervention, but support? To what extent do we change not just behavior, but the actual quality of life of a person? And the fascinating thing about doing that is as soon as you start talking about quality of life, you must pay attention to the preferences of the student and the family. I mean, quality of life is not something that you define for someone else. One person likes racing bicycles through mud. Another person likes playing in a nice, clean environment. I mean, quality is something that we define for ourselves. Uh, and the really fascinating thing, by starting with quality of life, you start by uh, basically making the science subjective to the values of the people. And the second part, though, is saying it really is science. It's not just uh, what we want. It's not a philosophy. It really is an approach. It's an approach to actually making a real change. So it's really around the, the science of human behavior. And one of the differences is there's a lot of things that we would like to believe about human behavior that don't turn out to be consistent with the science. So it is harsh in its commitment to empirical foundations. And then the third part that really has characterized PBS from a lot of other approaches is a commitment to the systems. Part of what we've learned is you, you make what you do subjective to the quality of life and the values of the people you work with. How you do it is driven by the science of um, medical, mental health, and behavioral technology. But you pay attention not just to little tiny isolated things, but also to the organizational systems, the funding, the policy, the teaming structures, the um, way in which you build ongoing accountability structures, so that you actually put things in place that are systemic and likely to endure for long time periods. So one of the things, one of our mantras is never put something in place that won't last for a minimum of a decade. And when you think about organizational systems in that way, you're actually talking about putting things in place that build stability and vision for people. PBIS took that approach and said, how do we use that knowledge to change the effectiveness of schools in the United States? And in large part, we, we talk in swift all the time about all means all and how do we actually include people as a vision and as a as a organizational framework that's a it's a great vision but it's a hard thing to do and in many ways drawing from positive behavior support has been helpful to us we want to use the values where we are not simply decreasing the likelihood of disruptive behavior. We are actually increasing uh, academic achievement, goals, communication, 
social development, the development of relationships, the building of physical and emotional capacity, so that children actually, it changes not just their immediate behavior, but the trajectory of their life. And, I mean, that sounds pedantic, but really it's, you need to start at that level if you're going to adopt the real vision. So when you say change the tra- trajectory of their life, um, give us an, an example of that. What? If you change the ability of a, of a young person to communicate, right? Right. And you actually increase their ability to interact successfully with others, suddenly, one, they start learning from the children around them, and two, the children around them start learning from them. That synergy changes dramatically. And I'd, I'd like to add three. The educators in their lives begin to have higher expectations of those students, and reputations begin to change. There you would go. Would you agree? I would. Yeah. Yeah. And then suddenly children who might have been considered uh, eligible for separate education for most of their lives are now on a path to meaningful careers in college? You know, we build different visions that we've got. Some kids are going to go one direction, others are going right. to go another. Right. We, we've got to listen a lot. And we've got to give as much power and authority and opportunity. Our job is to create degrees of freedom that they can spend as they deem. <laughs> All right. Um, so you are a leader on the evaluation team for SWIFT Center. Yes. And uh, now that we're in the fourth year of this project, what, what are we learning from the work happening in our schools around the country? The basic purpose that I see for SWIFT... Yes. I mean, we have many different things that we talk about, but in, in its essence, I see SWIFT as being a project providing proof of the concept that you can truly do inclusive education under typical conditions. And if you look at what SWIFT started with, it went for, we called them knowledge development schools, but basically looking at who's actually doing this. And we learned, one, definitely there are some excellent environments that kids with all types of disabilities and backgrounds are succeeding in. Unfortunately, part of what we learned is most of them developed through strategies, mechanisms, and timelines that were non-replicable. They were all based on unique situations. Our real goal is to describe how normal districts, normal states, normal schools, normal families can actually bring together those core features that make schools effective learning environments for all children and to show that in the 64 schools that are part of the SWIFT project, this is possible, feasible, usable. And from that, create a vision for uh, scaling up and expanding that will uh, be generalizable across the 110,000 schools throughout (laughs) all of the United States. Think it's possible? Oh, it's definitely possible. In fact, it's um, far more possible than you you might believe. SWIFT is pretty complicated. Actually, I I do believe so. (laughs) Um, But we're a long ways away from having either the political will or the technical capacity to pull it off. Mm -hmm. So it... Do you think the political will is growing with the 
the growing evidence around the successful outcomes being achieved by inclusive, equity-based education? Yes, I think there's an increase in the political will, but we're a long ways away from having it reach a level of capacity to, to make this a generalized construct. And I think in all fairness, the obligation is on us. So remember I said SWIFT is a project to do proof of concept. We've got to demonstrate not only that it's possible, but it's practical and doable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And m- people are not opposed to children with disabilities being successful. They just don't believe that we can do it in a manner that's cost-effective and in a manner that doesn't draw from the resources required by other children. Uh, And I think that that is an issue, a major issue, in terms of the field. We we have operated too often in a zero-sum game, and we have not, as a nation, actually invested well in education. We've invested a lot, but in education right now, the major problem we have is that we invest in things that are ineffective and that don't work. If we used exactly the same resources in ways that were uh, effective, productive, and uh, efficient, I think we would see a much greater interest in doing more, doing things differently, and including opportunities for kids from different backgrounds and kids with disabilities is going to be part of that. Right. Now, um, in talking about cost-effectiveness, and I know this is steering a little bit away from PBIS, and we'll get right back to that, but um, do you think that if if there was greater understanding around the uh, financial support for two separate systems, sometimes more than two separate systems, and when we merge those dollars, it it's sort of knocks out that argument around cost effectiveness. So it, you know, it, it's fairly expensive to support two separate systems. We're supporting much more than two separate systems. Agreed. We're, we're supporting mental health. We're supporting uh, special ed. We're support. So we we do not have a unified structure. We've gone to a model of supporting separate systems in part because when we had unified structures in the past, the funding for kids who had greater needs wasn't there. And families worried that the targeted resources for their son or daughter were really being siphoned off in other ways. So we've got to be more strategic. We've got to use our data better. We've, We've got to demonstrate with a little bit better sophistication how to operate an integrated system that has multiple objectives. Right, and that also merges resources. And that merges resources. It merges resources, which leads to a more effective costly cost approach. It, uh, or could. It could. Well, yeah. it, it does a lot. But we're, we're arguing that the only way you're going to do that is in part by recognizing that all teachers are special ed teachers. Exactly. And all administrators are special ed administrators. And that, in fact, all students are special in their own ways. Um, and I think that that is not part of our tradition uh, to date. 
and it's something that I think we will, we, we have the obligation of demonstrating how to do that in a way that is both effective for children and kids and is practical and successful for administrators and staff. Right. Um, now, PBIS is recognized as one of the swift features within the domain of multi-tiered systems of support. Um, can you talk a little bit about why PBIS was selected as one of those model features, some of the evidence that was driving that, um, that, that decision to uh, include PBIS as one of the prominent features of inclusive schools? Basically, the, the place you start is recognizing that all kids in schools have goals not just related to math, reading, and writing, but also to developing the social-emotional competence to be successful adults. And recognizing that social behavior makes a difference is really the foundation for PBIS. If what you do is you say, when we're looking at schools, we expect kids to learn academic skills, social skills, and to be able to work with others to be part of that organizational structure, then, you, then you've got to back up and say, well, what are the critical features of a learning community that would make that happen? And what PBIS offers is a framework for integrating the knowledge that we have about how to create effective learning environments, environments that both enhance uh, academic and they encourage and develop the social-emotional skills that allow kids to be successful. Now, that framework is has a three-tiered approach to it. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between those tiers? The old way of doing business was we had regular education and then we had individualized things that we did for kids who were not successful. That turned out to be an expensive and challenging way to operate. So part of what we've learned is the, the multi-tiered system, which is called RTI in academics, mm-hmm. you know, PBIS in right, behavior, right. and it's all being combined now under this notion of multi-tiered uh, structure. And, and the other under multi-tiered systems of support within the, the SWIFT framework is, of course, um, academic instruction. So, yes, yeah. yes, in both math and reading. And right, right, right. All right, so in part, the great thing about that is it focuses first on prevention, the, the tier one, the initial level of support. Mm-hmm. And should I imagine a triangle as yeah, I'm The triangle, the, the <laughs> beauty of the triangle is uh, everybody starts by getting things that work. Part of what people miss in the multi-tiered systems is the emphasis on using things that are evidence-based. Right. So evidence-based priority, Prevention first, use things that'll work for at least 80, 85% of the kids, but recognize, don't be surprised that there are some students who need more assistance. Plan for it. Actually build in structurally that they're gonna need some kids who need a little bit more support, and there are gonna be some students who need a whole lot of support. The students who need a whole lot of support need to have that support individualized based on assessments. 
but it needs to be embedded in an organizational framework that's efficient and includes access to the primary and secondary supports. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you, it's not different, but rather embedded. And that framework is far more efficient and far more likely to work. The schools that we see um, that were early on, one, one school in Oregon that I've been working with for over 18 years and has been doing PBIS, um, they don't even think of themselves as doing PBIS anymore. Mm. It's just the way we do right, right. education. The, cul the culture of their and school. And the, yep. uh, all the kids know what the expectations are. I mean, this is a middle school, 528 kids, and they know the five school-wide expectations. And the teachers... So, yeah, example, what, what might those be? Be respectful, be responsible, hands and feet to self, follow directions be kind. I mean, different schools yeah. come up with different ones. One of the things that we learned is when you move beyond a small number of models and you actually scale up, you have to accommodate cultural and community norms. So one of the things that we've learned from PBIS that will be an important part of SWIFT as we go forward is not to overstipulate define the core features, but let the path to the core features be driven by the context. You do The it, culture of the community it, of yeah, the school. You do it differently in elementary mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. middle. You do it differently mm -hmm. in urban than in rural. Mm -hmm. uh, the Native American communities in western New Mexico have their own way of doing We talk about teaching basic principles of behavior. And I did a presentation at one school and this guy came up afterwards and patted me on the back and said, you know, white guy, this is really a nice idea, but we've been doing this in our culture for 450 years. And I said, that's great. And so we actually had the elders right. of the community come in and teach. Great story. Using their yeah. language. But we then had the teachers transform those big ideas into what it actually means. So they, they were more about being honorable and being brave. But it turns out being honorable and being brave translate to very similar things of being respectful and responsible when you talk about what you do in the cafeteria, what you do on the playground, right? Sure, so you're gonna, it's gonna look different in New Hampshire compared to Mississippi, compared to Nevada, compared to California, it, but the principles will be the same. The expectations right. will be different, but there'll be four things that are really similar if it's okay. PBIS. One, the environment will be excruciatingly predictable. Everybody will know what the expectations are. It'll be consistent across people, place, and time. Excruciatingly predictable. That's that right. scares me a little bit. Well, <laughs> the issue is we like to think about what would work for us. Right. If we're really meaning all means all, I want you to think about the children who come from traumatic backgrounds. Of course. Children who come from different languages children who actually have learned on the street, not just uh, they haven't learned what you want, they've actually learned the opposite of what you want. Those kids come into environments that uh, privileged kids find easy to manage, and those environments are different and they're harsh and they're, they're odd, and the way that they are introduced to that is by being told what they are doing is wrong. That's a lousy way to introduce kids to good social constructs. Excruciatingly predictable means 
you build it so that everybody knows and that everybody, even kids who have difficulty learning or come from very different environments, can gain access to it. Uh, consistency across people, place, and time. When I was a teacher, I was taught, you know, here's your classroom. In fact, when I was my very first day of teaching, the principal took me, opened the door, shook my hand, said, here's your class, <laughs> here are your 19 kids, God bless you and good luck. <sighs> yes. Right? That was my orientation. That was mine too. Okay. And that's a lousy way to run the circus. We need to have a sense that your classroom is an important place for you, but it's part of a school. It's part of a learning community. And within big thing about PBIS is the whole school is perceived as the, the unit of intervention mm -hmm. and support. Mm -hmm. And you, you think about being part of that school. And that's very important if you're a, a student with disabilities because we don't want you just in one place. We want you to be throughout the, the environment with other kids doing other things. Um, so those are, those are elements that mm -hmm. we've learned. Now, you mentioned four. I heard predictability. Consistency. consistency positive, positive and safe. And safe. So consist, being predictable, consistent across people, place, and time, mm -hmm. positive in the sense that children are acknowledged for doing what's right at least four times as often as corrected for something wrong, mm -hmm. and safe both emotionally and physically. So that, and safety is an interesting thing. It's both a real you know, are you safe? And it's a perception. Do you feel safe? Mm -hmm. I want you to think about the fact that from our perspective as adults, we look at problem behaviors and we see aggression, disruption, whatnot. From students' perception, the single biggest thing in their mind is bullying. And bullying has not historically been what adults see as a problem because it's not a problem for right. the adults. Right. So we've got to actually make the environments feel safe. If we want kids to have the physical and emotional foundation that's going to make them open to learning. Um, thank you. Uh, now, many of our schools connected to SWIFT are um, implementing PBIS beginning to implement it, thinking about it, um, moving that forward, and always looking for examples. So can you give a couple of examples of if I walked into a school that was a PBI, a school who was fully implementing PBIS school-wide, wh what might I see that's different than in a school that's not? Okay, we actually do that. So if you walk into a school, you should be able within uh, five minutes to be able to define the behavioral expectations okay. for the school, whether you're a parent. So those a expectations teacher, be responsible. Whatever they whatever are. Whatever they are. Whatever yeah. they are, they're on the ceiling, the wall, the floor, mm -hmm. the back of the kids, mm -hmm. the uh, PA system. They're everywhere, right? The school and, minutes. The and the website. other thing is, you stop the students and you say, "Do you know what's expected here?" And they can tell you, uh -huh. yeah, this, we, the three Bs, right? Be respectful, be responsible, be safe, or whatever. Right. But then, here's what I want you I want you to say, what does that actually mean right here where we are? What mm -hmm. does it mean? And so they can not only tell you words, they can tell you what it translates into. You don't teach so mantras. So students could tell you these yes. things. Yes. You don't teach mantras. You teach behavioral concepts. So any student in their own words could explain to you in the hallway. In the hallway. This is what it means to be respectful and responsible. In, so you do it, uh -huh. not, you always do it in context. What right. does it mean here? Second thing is uh, you also would say, has, you know, has anybody acknowledged you for doing things right? And the kids will say, yeah. 
How do you get acknowledged? Well, some of them have little tokens, but right, the, the to tokens are simply a way of uh, really, again, helping those kids with greater needs. Typical kids don't really need the, 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 the physical part, but they do need a high rate and they do need clarity. We do not, as a country, do a very good job of teaching our teachers basic principles of uh, behavior support. And as a result, we sort of expect children to behave well. We don't actually build the context in which they get the support to behave well. So that would be maybe examples of what you'd see at a Tier 1 level? That's Tier 1. That's Tier 1. So how about Tier 2? What Tier 2, the basic issues around behavior at Tier 2 are you want to increase structure so that the student has more prompts during the day, but remember, remember, remember. Second is they get more feedback. So the frequency of feedback goes up, the rate of positives goes way up, and the precision of corrections improves. The other thing is if they need more help, that means they're engaging in problem behavior, and you need to look at ways of minimizing the likelihood that problem behavior is actually rewarded. So the check-in, check-out program is an example of that. The very first thing a child does when they walk into the school is they check in with a nurturing adult. And the reason for doing that is to give them something to do right at the beginning that they succeed at. So the day gets launched successfully. They have a way of approaching adults. And when they approach the adults, they basically prompt the adult to do uh, to acknowledge them, to use their name, to say they're happy they're there. So you build in mm -hmm. a highly efficient, easy way for the student to go through the day and get supported. And one of the things that Check In, Check Out is designed to do is to teach children how to get what they need from adults. And typical kids are incredibly sophisticated at doing that. Kids who are in behavioral trouble oftentimes learn to avoid adult interactions. That basically is a dangerous pattern. It leads to a cycle of things not working. So we actually teach kids, this is how you get attention and support from adults. We make it easy for the adults, and then you build, instead of a coercive cycle, you build a constructive cycle. Many little things that build on themselves. Uh, and the idea of tier two is you do it in a way that is very, very, very efficient. I um, just, a memory popped into my head of, I was visiting a knowledge development school and there was a little boy who, who um, was identified as, as having some pretty challenging behaviors and I, I think it was a tier two support um, and he ended up, he would get to have lunch with the principal on a regular basis. And, and I just remember watching that interaction between the principal and this little boy and how joy-filled he was by um, having been so successful that week that he had lunch with the principal. And, and now not every student in the school was eligible for lunch with the principal. And yep. this was a kid who you know, clearly had a, uh, what could have been a negative reputation. And you just watch that turn around by the connection with that, it's um, a with great that principal. Story. Yeah. So my similar example would be um, I love, there's a student named Derek, and Derek was in fifth grade, and he was really having trouble. 
and he actually got tier three supports. So he got individualized support, and the last half of his fifth grade year was the best academically and socially that he'd ever had. Um, so what did that tier three support look like? Actually, let me, let that, me keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep bit. going. So, Sorry, so didn't mean to interrupt. It, it was the the tier three support always starts by assessing what the individual supports look, what he needs, what are the behaviors, what are the context it does, what are the things that maintain his inappropriate behavior. Would that be a functional behavior assessment? It's functional behavioral okay. assessment. Then what we're able to do is to build the plan that gives him not just consequences, but actual training in how to become more successful. He had gone through um, five or six months in his fifth grade year of really doing well. And he transitioned into now being in middle school. And middle school transition is a big deal. Right, right. And so part of what he did the very first day of his middle school, very first day, he walked into the middle school, big school. He looked around and he saw the principal and he knew who she was because she had come to his elementary school, right? And he walked up to her and he shook her hand. He said, hi, I'm Derek. What are the behavioral expectations here? <laughs> That is a great story. And the thing I want you to take away from that is both he was nervous. Yeah. And he really expected us to establish things that were going to work. Predictable, consistent. Positive and safe. Yeah. Yep. So those are the things that the thing that we try and do within PBIS is not not control behavior but empower. Okay. So I want to get back to my question. What did the tier three intervention look like for Derek? So, because I think that's the, the, the spot on the triangle, the tip that people have the most questions about. You know, it's interesting because tier three is what we know the most about. Tier okay. three is where... So the tier early, three would be the functional behavior assessment. Well, but okay. don't, don't just do that. Think about this. You start... Tier three starts by saying, this is a student who has enough needs that we need to individualize the support. So functional behavioral assessment is going to say, what are the behaviors? Okay. What's the context? Why does it keep happening? But it also is going to look at the, the setting events or motivating operations. So that's going to back up and look at what's happening at home. What are the physiological variables the student is dealing with? What are the larger contexts? Think about the work around wraparound supports and the the idea that we've got to stop this narrow idea that we're going to build this skill and reward good and punish bad. It really is a much larger uh, set of variables. And so changing those, including family supports, uh, community supports, building the context where the, the child actually is actively succeeding, not just not failing. The other parts that we're learning is some children come with really legitimate mental illnesses where they need um, medical support combined with uh, instructional and behavioral supports. So in part, you pull together the different pieces, not with a 19-person, multi-tiered, cosmic group of adults. <laughs> you actually do it systematically and trajectory based on the unique needs of that child and his or her family in context. And something that's different than reading or math, a student who does reading and math does them typically similarly in one place or another place. Behavior is not inside people. 
It's the interaction of mm. people, mm-hmm. experience, and context. And behavior support is not the altering of a student. It's the design of environment that allows a child to be successful. The question, when you look at individualized behavior support, is what are the critical features of an environment where she will be successful? And when you ask it that way, you ask it in a slightly larger way. And uh, it changes both how you do the intervention and how you evaluate if you're being successful. It changes how you think about the student as well. I mean, I, I, I really love that approach and taking the responsibility away from the student and putting it on the environment, the context, the, the supports that exist. So that's, uh, that's a really nice way to look at it. There's an aspect uh, in PBIS or in, in our schools in the field of mental health, trauma-informed care that seems to be um, on the horizon and, and changing the way that we think about students who have labels of challenging behavior. Could you talk a little bit about how trauma-informed care fits into the PBIS framework? Absolutely. PBIS recognizes that it's not just what happens at the moment. It's the learning history that a child brings. Behavior is a function of physiology, learning history, and social context. We focus a lot on the learning history part, and that's the part that we can actually manipulate. Physiology, everybody brings their own physiology, which makes them more accessible to different things in the environment. But the social context actually changes things. Children who have been through very significant traumas, through things that children should not be having to deal with, are oftentimes hypersensitive to things that we think of as being trivial or easily to get around. Just as a child with autism may experience the buzz of a fluorescent light in a different way than other kids, a student who has seen adults engage in very significant violence is responds very differently to even modest reprimand from an adult. And part of that is their learning history. Part of it is the narrative that they, the self-instructions that they're giving. So part of what we've learned within trauma-informed backgrounds, I mean, if you look at the, the, the research that's going on right now, there are a small number of strategies that are actually being demonstrated to be successful. I would argue that this is an area of the field that we have a lot yet to learn mm-hmm, about. Mm-hmm. But at a minimum, one, if you're going to create a learning environment that is helpful to kids who come from significant trauma, create an environment that is very clear, very predictable, very consistent, very positive, very safe. And I'm sure that that safety aspect is, is going to be a priority. Second is you actually give the student some uh, tools, and it depends on what her or his background is, but some, some self-instructional tools, ways of defining the environment around them, ways of organizing social behavior. Children oftentimes don't have words for complicated social interaction patterns, and so they're just experiencing them without the linguistic context that gives it meaning and structure and understandability giving some of that language so that it fits 
both their experience and helps them to say, this is what you do under these situations, this is what you do under these situations. And actually teaching that can be incredibly helpful. The other thing is recognizing that in a trauma-informed background, you don't expect to have a uh, epiphany where suddenly, all right, everything's fine. It takes time to build competence, capacity, and, and help. And recognizing that in part, when a student experiences something that places them in a very uh, anxious, physiologically aroused state, that's not a learning state. And moving back to a state of comfort and control is, is very important. What good example, um, even kindergarten and first grade children who come from trauma backgrounds, when you look at their, um, at their physiology, you can either, there are several different ways in which it gets measured. All kids, when they come into school at the beginning of the day, they're really excited, right? Their, their cortisol levels are, are fairly high. Typical kids, after about half an hour, their cortisol level drops down. Kids from trauma-based backgrounds, their cortisol level, their anxiety level, mm-hmm. their level of, um, of tension Mains, remains high all day long. That is not so they've a actually, environment. They've actually done studies on the on cortisol levels of these yes. kids. Yes, yep. little, wow. little mouth swabs. It's uh, <sighs> odd research, but it yeah. is. No, it's and telling, it's, it, though. It's, it's, not a, enough, it's not enough that we could generalize mm-hmm, too much, mm-hmm. but it's enough where we've got to be a lot more sensitive. And I think we underestimate... Um, we underestimate the impact of trauma for students with disabilities. Mm-hmm. We... We infer that disabilities are the reason for X or Y. Really, it's not just the disability. It's the experience that the students have had where things have been unpredictable. Things have been damaging and dangerous. Things have been very much what they didn't want. Mm-hmm. And without, without understanding how to influence the environment around mm-hmm. them, those are, those are dangerous situations. And you've got to give kids a framework for understanding how to influence the behavior of adults. And if you don't give them that, they'll build it on their own, usually using behaviors that we find problematic. Mm -hmm. And give adults the strategies to understand the behavior of kids if trauma's been, you know, is involved. yeah, it's, it's fascinating, the research that's coming out on trauma-informed care and how we start to embed new practices in our schools to support students. One of the things I think is exciting, both with PBIS and with SWIFT, part of what you're looking at is basic ideas are being shaped by new knowledge yes, that's coming yes. in. Yes, yes. So we're not building strategies and approaches that are um, cast in stone. We're building frameworks that are very susceptible to new information being uh, added and shaping the field. That's something that will add some um, sustainability, some legs to the extent to which we're putting things in place that can endure. Now, um, just a couple more questions. And uh, one of them has to do with um, kindness. Do you think that by implementing these approaches that schools are becoming kinder places for learning, that children are becoming kinder, adults becoming more welcoming and accepting? 
I think that's a that's a frame that's a framing of the question from the perspective of adults. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think it is not just kindness. I think it's clarity, accessibility, um, a, a sense of being part of rather than subjected to the environment. So kindness is such a wonderful word. You know, <laughs> the danger of wonderful words is everybody knows exactly what it means and nobody, nobody knows, knows exactly same. what it means, right. right? So we know what it means for us. And many of the schools that actually do PBIS um, say be kind is one of the expectations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. But then you've got to stop and say, well, what does that mean? Well, being kind in school means in part reflecting on the fact that your behavior affects everyone else around you. All right? So I want you to behave in a manner that's kind. I want you to take into account the best interest of the other people around you. How do you do that? And now you've taken it from this sort of warm word to being something that is actually a logic model that you can use. So let's talk about being kind on the playground. Let's talk about being kind in the cafeteria. Let's talk about being kind when you are with everybody and you're putting your coats away, right? What does it look like? Until we actually give things reality to this, I mean, children are very much focused on make it concrete. And children who come with the most significant challenges with respect to either their background or their learning abilities need that clarity the most. So, yes, I would say schools that are implementing PBIS are kinder environments. One of the reasons I'd say that is I'd back up and I'd say we get an increase in the likelihood that the kids attend school. We get an increase in the likelihood that they engage academically. We get an increase in the social interaction initiations and responses to initiations. So those are, those are indicators, you know, crass indicators of an environment that is more welcoming. But um, the way we do it has to be done in a manner that fits the perspective of children and the developmental and social level of children, right? So you do it differently in high school than you do in, you know, we, we might have the same construct, but you might label it slightly differently for high school students. Uh, and in high school, for example, we never encourage adults to select the expectations. We encourage the adults to work with the students Support to select the expectations. Students to determine those expectations. Right. Absolutely. So They're going to make sense. Yeah, no, it does help. It, it helps a lot. I actually did hear you say that PBIS supports greater kindness as an outcome in schools. So, um, so in closing, we've talked about the impact of implementing a PBIS framework in schools resulting in um, improved outcomes in, in social relations, in behavior, in social connections, in, in kindness, and, <laughs> uh, and the, the research is, is there to support all those outcomes. Uh, as a teacher who might be listening, what might your one piece of advice be on uh, how to begin to implement 
PBIS in their classroom, in their school? The, the thing that I would say, if you're a teacher and you're thinking about your classroom, yes. create a classroom that is transparent for the student so that the student is able to infer what are the expectations. They should be able to say what is expected and they should be able to take the most common routines and actually describe how the routine operates. Make it so that students are self-managing rather than following repeated uh, directions and prompts from the teacher. Give power rather than control and focus everything around building a community of learning rather than a linear model of following instructions. Children too often get the message that behavior support involves compliance. Behavior support is not compliance. It is all about building the, the sense of understanding what expectations are and understanding that that is both in the, in the benefit of the individual child and in the others. Uh, if you do PBIS well, you have children who are as concerned about everybody else in the school as they are about themselves. Excellent, excellent. Um, this has been a great conversation, and thank you, Rob, for joining us this morning. And for our listeners, if you would like to learn more about PBIS as a feature within the MTS multi-tiered system of support domain of SWIFT schools, please go to swiftschools.org, check out the SWIFT guide, and there are plenty of resources, all kinds of resources, uh, films, uh, strategies to implement in your classrooms, research to support the implementation on the SWIFT guide. Again, that's swiftschools.org. And, and I'm Mary Shu talking to you from the SWIFT Center. And SWIFT is a national K-8 through center that provides academic and behavioral support to promote the learning and academic achievement of all students, including students with disabilities and those with the most extensive needs. And again, thank you so much, Rob Horner, for joining us today. Thank you.